Hey, Greg. Hey, Andrew. It's August 15th, 2017. What are you into? Well, boy, this week has been has been a weird week. Um, ever since the weekend where we had a bunch of weird news, it's been kind of tough to focus on anything but uh, the news. Um, so I've been watching um, a fantasy show from the 90s. It takes place in a fantastical world. Uh, that is somewhat like our own, but uh, governed by a completely different set of laws. Uh, that show is called Frasier. You may have heard of it. <laughs> what what Fra- prompted this? <laughs> uh, I honestly don't know. Um, I think I was I was in New Jersey a week or two ago um, and just kind of fell into a conversation with my brother-in-law about how good Frasier was. And I was like, you know what? I need to put something on that's, you know, just kind of distracting and, you know. Um, comfortable. So, Frasier it was. Uh, and I say it's a fantasy because Frasier is a uh, television show about a radio psychiatrist who lives in like a $7 million penthouse apartment and drinks nothing but like fine imported wine and wears Armani suits. But I remind you, he is a radio psychiatrist in Seattle. So, it was a fun time. You know, the 90s, you could just dream whatever you wanted, man. The world was wide open. It was a simpler time. Also, he's like hefty and bald and kind of an asshole and like a deadbeat dad, but women still throw themselves at him in like every episode. It's a pretty good show. I only remember what I remember from being, you know, like seven and watching it and being not really into it. Because Spider-Man was on before it. What? Spider-Man was not on before Frasier. I mean, some nights probably. What What kind of weird, <laughs> what kind of weird time schedule were you watching TV in where it was like the animated adventures of Spider-Man and then Frasier? Well, like, I don't know about you, but back in the 90s, late 90s, when I was a young child, I'd watch a lot of TV when I got home from school, as one is ought to do at that age. Uh... And I would watch like, you know, they were had like a little cartoon section on Fox that was always like perfect time when kids go home from school. So it'd be like Batman and the animated series and like Spider-Man and X-Men. Maybe it was on also on whatever the WB network was at the time, five or something like that. And but then it would immediately lead into, immediately lead into sitcoms. Now, usually there was a little bit of a transition where we go from like Batman the animated series to like Blossom or something stupid like that or like Full House but sometimes it would go right into like Roseanne or Frasier or Seinfeld or something like that so yeah I mean I, I don't know it was all in the evening and I would just kind of just keep watching so uh, if, well <laughs> I guess I don't know I'm still trying to work out where you're watching Spider-Man on Fox and then somehow the channel changes to NBC at 10 to watch Frasier but whatever okay this well is, maybe it wasn't exactly t- Frasier but it was on at that <laughs> time of day some show there was some show Maybe you're thinking of Cheers reruns? No, I didn't watch that show. That show was way too old. Um, anyway. But have you made any more progress in uh, First Law? Um, I bought the second book. I read the first page. And then I fell asleep. And now it's uh, and now it's a week later and I haven't made any more progress. New dads, uh, everybody. New dads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, cool. Uh, I, Although I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got a long train ride tomorrow. I might, I might, uh, I might do some catching up. Good, but you enjoyed the first book very much, very much. Good. Well, we'll talk about it tonight a little bit. Uh, I think so. Shall we jump right in? So, yeah. What are we talking about tonight? 
So the question of tonight's episode is, what's in a map? Just going to let so that question want. linger for a while. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it won't because we're going to put the audio compression on that, you know, cuts all the silences. But <laughs> no, I, I, we've been talking a lot the past few weeks about some of the, some of the flaws in recent Game of Thrones episodes with traveling around. Yes. And I think this is a subject that even more casual viewers of the show are starting to pick up on that like, man, people are just zooming around Westeros now. Yeah, I mean, you see all kinds, the internet's just laid in with jokes of, you know, boy, that new Westeros interstate really, you know, changed the world for them. Uh, but yeah, so it got me thinking, I've always wanted to do an episode about maps. It was on our list from the very beginning uh, when we started, you know, almost a year ago, uh, brainstorming about this this idea. And it's really just because I really like maps. And if you look around, you know, through your webcam in my room, you can see, you know, a map of Middle-earth, map yes. of Westeros, <laughs> etc. So I just like maps. I've always liked maps from when I was a little kid. And I find myself just staring at maps a lot because I think they're interesting. But in the context of this, I wanted to talk about uh, why, do, why do maps matter? So we've seen, you know, Game of Thrones sort of bungling the handling of its locations and geography and character movement. And so I want to focus on not just more bashing on Game of Thrones, but sort of dig deeper and say, you know, like, why do these things matter? And why does a map or the relative geographic location and ability to travel matter in fantasy stories? Yeah, and I think that it matters more than it does in anything with a modern or futuristic context, because and I think we'll get into this in more detail a little bit later. But like, in a pre-modern society, you know, where you're still dealing with either, you know, transportation by foot or by horse, essentially, um, and there's no mass communication of any, uh, there's no telephones, there's no telegraphs, there's, you know, essentially, can you get a letter there in time, which moves about as fast as a person does, um, that the distance between places really, really mattered because the time it would take you to get from place to place mattered in such a way that if you had a long enough journey to take, you might not be able to do that this year because, oh, by the time we get halfway there, it'll be winter and the roads will be very, very dangerous. Um, and that would be something like, that could even be an issue like traveling from, say, Pennsylvania to Massachusetts, you know, in, in a pre-automobile world. And how fast information travels is something that I think that we take for granted, but when you look at as and Game of Thrones actually does a good job of this of saying, you know, pointing out what information various characters have at any given point, and they make decisions maybe on bad information or outdated information, just because it takes a long time for word to get around. And so the distances between places in something that takes place in a, you know, a medieval type setting, those distances matter a lot more than they do in, you know, a modern work. The distance between New York and Philadelphia is trivial in today's world, but in a pre-modern world, that was a week or more. Right. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, sometimes people say, can't we just suspend our disbelief and recognize that, you know, the show has limited time or, you know, they have to accomplish a lot and just kind of just go with it. Well, okay, but I get where that's coming from. I understand that, but I don't really need to see, you know, we don't want to watch hours and hours of people just walking, although that tends to be what fantasy books oftentimes are, uh, but that's for a reason. And also that reason 
fits in a context of, like you said, like the travel distance, the time, and it usually is a point of plot interest. You can't build things around this system, whatever the system is, whether it's, you know, okay, Ravens can go this fast, whatever, you know, we can kind of get down to King's Landing from Winterfell in X amount of days, and then just pull the carpet out and do whatever you want halfway through the story, which I think is right. the crucial part. Consistency. It's, exactly. And consistency, internal, in, in, ugh, internal consistency and an internal logic are important for any work of fiction. And I think even for people who, like I say, don't watch Game of Thrones that closely, aren't nitpicking people like us, they are starting to notice like, hey, they're getting around much more f quickly than they used to. And also... You know, I think in any work of fiction, you want to have a sense of how much time has passed between this episode and the next episode, or um, from one scene to the next. You just, you know, okay, is this an hour later? Is this simultaneously? Is this a year later? You want to know. And in Game of Thrones, you had more of a sense of how much time was passing between these events in the earlier seasons. And when you lose that, it disconnects you from the story. And you're like, wait. What happened here? How long has it been since this thing happened? And you start to wonder, okay, well, if now all of a sudden we're skipping ahead a year, because that's how long it takes this character to get from there, you're like, well, what what happened during that year? Did anything important happen? Anything I should know about? And it's just that internal consistency. We were used to seeing our characters go through the journey and all the things that would happen to them on the journey. You know, like, you know, um, so Jon Snow and Davos sailed from a port near Winterfell all the way to Dragonstone, like that took at least a week. So that's just two guys on a week long sea voyage, just hanging out. Did they have any important conversations? Did they discuss anything worth knowing? Did anything interesting happen between them? Or is it like, you know, on sitcoms where, you know, they start a joke when they're leaving the restaurant, the scene cuts to them walking in their front door and it's the punchline to the joke and your brain doesn't even catch it. Like it's again, it's that consistency. And when you're building a fantasy world, and I think this is especially true for fantasy and sci-fi fiction, where you're really asking your readers or your viewers to step into a different world, like that world has to be consistent with itself in order for it to feel real and to feel interesting and worthwhile. Right. So that being said, my thesis for this episode is that in a world of pre-modern fantasy, geography matters a great deal. And that the reason that it matters that leads to two important points is that it's important dictates that internal consistency and logic matter, as we discussed. Second point is that a useful tool to help accomplish this for the reader without bogging down the story or doing things that don't really feel right, you know, like feel kind of like exposition or that like faux exposition you get when characters are like, oh, well, yeah, don't you remember? It's 18 kilometers to blow. It's like, no, you don't, no one talks like that. So <laughs> it pulls you out of the story to hear that. So just give them a map. And we're going to talk about what kind of map and what that looks like. But having a map, I think, is helpful uh, for a reader or a watcher. And, and to be clear, we're talking about, you know, a lot of times you open up a fantasy book and they're right in the first couple of pages is a big illustrated map of the world that it takes place in. Or, you know, a lovely, beautiful intro credit sequence that focuses heavily on, you know, map and distance and geography. But I, you know, who knows? Who knows? That's just an idea. We weren't going to spend the whole time talking about Game of Thrones. No, we aren't. So we're going to move on. So <laughs> we're going to go back deep to the annals of history and talk about, you know, the hero's journey, right? It's at the crux 
of a lot of the great epics of ye olden times. Gilgamesh, the Odyssey, Beowulf, the Norse sagas. A lot of these have or are wholly based around a hero traveling often from you know his home place to a place where there's a specific goal in mind, something to do or something to rescue, perhaps a tower to scale, a dragon to slay, uh, beer to drink in Beowulf's case. Um, and along the way, they have to encounter certain things, and that's what develops your hero and your story. Uh, you know, essentially the side quests, right? You got to have side quests because the side quests aren't for the side quests sake, although they can be interesting in their own right. They're there to show you this character, who they are, what they've experienced. By the time they get to the place they're going, you know this character and you know what their deal is. So it makes the finale, the conclusion, very interesting. If they just showed up there, if this is the reverse case, but if Odysseus just left Troy and went home and it was just a story about him fighting off his wife's suitors, it wouldn't be a very interesting story. <laughs> Further, it also allows the author to give you new settings, dangerous and exotic locations and characters and monsters. You know, once again, it wouldn't make sense for Odysseus to run into sirens and cyclopses. Cyclopses? It's like, it's Greek, so. Cyclopi? Cyclopi, yeah, I guess so. Uh, in Attica, because, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense unless that area is known for that, which it isn't. Right. And then you lose all the wonder and the mystery of the monster if this is, oh, yeah, these guys just hang out around the block. I just met a particularly mean one. Right. Exactly. I mean, not saying things can't, bad things can't come to the hero sometimes, but. Yeah. So, I mean, this this falls back on an old kind of um, chestnut that there are two kinds of stories either someone comes to town or someone leaves town and high fantasy, epic fantasy usually falls into the someone leaves town archetype of it's really about your main character. They're leaving a place of comfort, both literally and figuratively. So, you know, literally they're leaving their home to go off and adventure in the wider world. Figuratively, they're leaving the place of comfort, which was the life they knew so that they can go and grow as a character. Um, and you can see that it, it, it's not just fantasy. I mean, that is many, many, many. I mean, you could even say that Die Hard falls into that category. You've got a character who, you know, John McClane leaves home and goes to Los Angeles and then things go wrong. Um, but urban fantasy, which is that I, I wouldn't call it a developing genre anymore. That's pretty well established. But um, it often relies on it goes a little bit differently. It is kind of this someone comes to town um, archetype and and just a couple quick examples and i think these examples will help illustrate the difference between the someone leaves town the hero you know the going going away on your big adventure um so in perdido street station china miaville's first bass lag um novel so the station kicks off when you've got the station <laughs> the story <laughs> kicks off when uh you've got kind of a mysterious stranger shows up on our protagonist's doorstep and looking for help and that kind of kicks off the adventure mistborn which i would at least the first three novels file under urban fantasy um kind of starts with kelsier sort of coming to town he may or may not have been you know running around in the central city a little bit but like he kind of makes his appearance on the scene and upsets the existing order um gentlemen bastards um you've got a new a new crime boss shows up in the town and that sets the plot into motion so but you contrast that with something like tolkien where frodo is 
sitting at home, safe and comfortable in the Shire. Gandalf shows up and says, hey, you need to walk halfway across the room and put a ring in a uh, volcano because it's got some words on it. You have to go. Um, in Star Wars, you know, um, Luke is more or less comfortable on the moisture farm until a robot shows up and says, you know, hey, there's adventure waiting for you if you go find this wizard. And I think that, you know, to your point, letting your character go on a journey, it allows you to it allows you to kind of have them just make a bunch of pit stops on their road to adventure and encounter interesting things. Whereas when when the adventure comes to them, sometimes it just becomes more about solving a mystery or um you know, finding the traitor or learning the identity of the big bad guy as opposed to more of the heroic quest. Right. And, you know, the great classic fantasy stories, and there's a reason why I think urban fantasy is absent from the rules, uh, talking about maps and geography, but we'll get to that. Um, but the great classic fantasy stories, you know, that we always think of the big pantheon of them, you know, it usually is some variations we have to get from here to there in order to do that, Right. And that's most fiction, I guess, in some way, but uh, whether it's, you know, literal or figurative. But so obviously, you know, you said like Tolkien, The Hobbit and Lord Rings books are both full of travel to the point where it's become a bit of a meme, you know, a joke about how the Lord of the Rings is just people walking the whole time, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't incorrect, I guess. Um, the Wheel of Time begins with a group of kids having to leave the two rivers, which is essentially the Shire, um, in order to escape great danger. And, you know, Song of Ice and Fire... It breaks the mold a little bit, but, you know, there is a lot of journeying in it. Yeah. And, you know, I think the big, when the, 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 when the literal journey has to match up with a kind of character journey and the big metaphor is that, you know, the thing you want, your ultimate goal is going to require some work. It's going to require getting you out of your comfort zone. Like that's the kind of er message of these heroic quest narratives. But if you look at, especially thinking especially about the first book or first season of Game of Thrones, where it kind of, it is about the Stark family. They're our hero, right? They are leaving home and entering into a wider, more dangerous world that they have to learn how to survive in. They have to adapt as they go in order to survive in this new world. And that world is is not necessarily dangerous because there's monsters in it, but because it's much more politically driven and scheming and intrigue based than the world that the Starks were used to. And that's why Ned gets his ass killed is because he was not prepared to, you know, survive in this world. And then you see over the long sweep of, of the, of the stories, the Stark children, they kind of complete the hero's journey. They learn how to survive in the new world and return home changed and more or less improved. You know, John learns how to be a leader. Sansa learns how to do intrigue. Arya becomes an assassin. They all learn how to survive in the world, you know, and come back changed, which is kind of the the heroic quest archetype. Martin just takes seven or eight books getting there and includes a lot of sub journeys along the way of like, well, now he's going on a journey to the wall. Now he's going on a journey north of the wall. Now he's going on a journey down to Dragonstone. Don't worry about the journey. He's just there. (laughs) All right. We're not going to talk about Game of Thrones all night. We're not going to talk about Game of Thrones all night. Yeah, but you know, and, and but these things, you know, you said they they allow, they provide convenient and sometimes necessary mechanics for an author to work with. It allows them to have their characters, you know, give them something to do while they are developed, and he develops he or she develops the world and plot. Uh, it allows for you know 
like I said, side quests and other shenanigans to occur, which I think can help with pacing sometimes, right? Like, you don't want to, most stories don't go right to the conclusion, right? That wouldn't be a very, be a short story, number one. And <laughs> number two, it wouldn't be the most, maybe the most compelling because you don't really know anybody or have a stake in it. But you also don't want to just sit around and do nothing and just talk about philosophy the whole book. <coughs> Orson Scott card. Um, so it gives you something to do. Um, well, and it, it gives you, and it also gives your heroes like, an easy way to have them kind of go through escalating challenges right? because they're moving from thing to thing and overcoming obstacle to obstacle. Whereas if the adventure comes to them, you kind of end up in a situation that's maybe a little bit like Dragon Ball, where it's like more powerful people just keep coming to earth to try to beat Goku where, you know, um, well, it's like the video game model. You know, it's like you go and you start in an easy place and you get, it gets progressively harder. You learn new things as you go and then you get to the end and you've mastered it. And that's the, that's the heroic quest. So having a geography to map that out over, well, you know, oh, first we went to the forest and we dealt with the spiders and then we went to the mountain and we dealt with the goblins. I think I got that backwards. Uh, I think you could, yeah, mountain and goblins and then spider and then, you know, and then river and then dragon. Um, and Bilbo learns different things at each step. Right. And I think the last thing it does is it really allows what a lot of fantasy authors, I think, set out to do from the beginning, which some people consider good or bad, but is world building, right? It allows them to flex those muscles they've been wanting to flex uh, in possibly a, you know, somewhat sort of hedonistic way, I guess you'd say, to, uh, you know, to show you different cultures and different peoples and flora and fauna and geography and craziness that you can do in a fantasy world. Yeah. And this is where an area which I have a lot of gripes with some lesser authors who... Whoa. Whoa. What? What? No, no, I'm just... Go ahead. <laughs> so I understand it's interesting to have a lot of different, like, uh, ecosystems and cultures and all these things that your hero is going to encounter on his or her journey. I'm, I like that idea, and I like the idea of, you know, fan using fantasy to explore those things. But your fantasy world needs to have some logical coherence to the real world. And a lot of authors really drop the ball here. So it's about the degree that things change from location to location. And so that's deg the degree that things need to change to be realistic. So if you've got two like neighboring countries, right, that live next to each other, they share a border, um, geographic neighbors. So they might have different languages. Yeah, we see that in in our real world, you know. Germany and France are neighbors, but they speak very different languages and they have slightly different cultures, but the the broad strokes of the culture are pretty much the same, right? At least in pre-modern times we're talking about a patriarchal society, a feudal society. Um they've got a 7-day week, they've got a base 10 counting system, and a linguist could even show you the common roots of their language. And that's because these, even though they're different countries, they trade with each other, they interact with each other, people move across the borders, they're right next door to each other, they're only going to be so different. Um, but to use an example of an area where this is done poorly, and this is where the geography of your world and the distances really start to matter in bringing in that logical consistency to your world. Another thing that I said I wasn't going to talk about anymore, but name of the wind, um, there's the society, the ADEM that do the fantasy karate, they live a couple days journey outside of kind of the, you know, the central area of the, 
of the civilization, just a couple days journey, but they have a matriarchal society that has very, very different views on sex. Their entire economy is based on being mercenaries. They've got this weird mystic religion that is completely different than the religion of the rest of the world. And the only thing separating them from the rest of the world is a long walk. And that just doesn't jive with what we know about our world. I mean, even in our world where we have cultures that have huge degrees of um, geographic separation, like Japan, even though, I mean, up until the point where we really started to cross-pollinate, Japanese culture was very different from Western culture, but family structures were still the same. The economy still worked more or less the same way. You know, um, time was measured much the same way. You know, the, you know, you broke, broken down into months and weeks and those sorts of things. It wasn't that terribly different. Uh, not as different as you see a lot of fantasy cultures being. And you know what? If you want to have your, your, alternative cultures separated by like a, you know, like a, a thousand mile sea and a treacherous mountain range. And no one even knows what these other people look like. I've only heard about them in legend. And it's like, all right, maybe we can start to have this idea, but like not, they can't just be a wagon right away. Example of doing it right. Um, Lord of the Rings, I think actually does a great job. Um, and I think it's illustrated very well in uh, the Peter Jackson movies, the difference between the Rohan and the people of Gondor. Whereas, so the Rohan, you remember, they're the horse lords, and um, all of their art is based around horses, and their military tactics are all about cavalry, and they live on the plains. That makes sense, right? They, um, But they speak the same language as the men of Gondor, have pretty similar culture in the broad strokes, but Gondor is maybe more of a cosmopolitan, urban, uh, maybe more mercantile civilization but still you're like oh these guys are pretty much the same they're just different around the edges it's a gradient right and you know i think gradients work best here right you don't as you go from say germany i'm going to oversimplify here and the anthropologist in the room will shoot me but you know as you go from germany to japan eastwards you see gradients come and go right you know like as you move from Central Europe to Eastern Europe, there's some things that are the same and some things that are different. And then as you move into Eastern Europe, into Russia or like Turkic cultures, you see some more differences. And then, but some, some things are still the same. And then by the time you get to their side, it looks different, but it didn't just happen via one border, right? Right. You know, one, especially, especially if we go back to a time when borders were really just lines on paper and not even, you know, talking about a pre-modern world, not even that well-defined most likely. So it was really less of a reason to have such you know, such um, sharp divisions between cultures. And I think that, you know, like I said, you can accomplish that with certain geographic things. And there's, you know, we see it in our modern world today. There's, you know, whole cultures in the Amazon and, you know, in the Peloponnesian that like, not Peloponnesian, Polynesian, um, <laughs> almost the same thing, right? That's fair. Um, in the Polynesian that like, we don't even know who they are, right? Yes. But, but that's that's the exception, not the rule. And you wouldn't have a whole continent of easily traversable grasslands and plains and normal sized mountain ranges and have these dramatically different right. cultures exist. And those those Polynesian cultures that do have vastly different societal organization and, you know, might even have different, you know, number systems, different ways of measuring times, they are geographically isolated. And if we had been trading with them and interacting with them for the last two or three hundred years, there would their culture would probably start to 
you know, cultures would start to mend and mingle. And, um, it, and that's the thing I think that bothered me the, one of the most about the ADEM is that these people trade with the, with the central civilization all the time. They're not bringing ideas back. They're not, you know, their ideas aren't catching on in the mainland at all. It's just, it's as if they live on that island, but for travel convenience, they don't. Right. So I think this stands in stark comparison to a lot of science fiction, which oftentimes involves some sort of fast travel, whether it's, you know, faster than light travel, as in most things, or like Star Wars or Star Trek, or like um, something like the Farcast or Farcasters? I forget what they're called. Then Hyperion, they're basically just portals. Um, you know, people can sit around the ship chatting and like things can go wrong on journeys, as we saw in the Star Wars movies. But like, generally, they're not the focus. The travel is not the focus. It's you know, hopping from one location to another, what happens along the way is not really important. So, and this is the same for superhero stories, which are, I think, oftentimes, to your earlier point, Greg, about what type of, you know, two types of stories, they're oftentimes someone bad comes to town and they're often setting bounds. You know, I was going to say, I was going through the list in my head, like, well, Spider-Man has New York City and Daredevil has New York City and, like, the Fantastic Four have New York City. And I was like, well, I guess everyone just has New York City. Never mind. I guess superheroes just mostly take place in New York City. But, you know, like Batman has Gotham and you know, these kind of things. So, yeah. Which is New York. <laughs> which is yeah, essentially New York circa 1970, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why, you know, this is one of the reasons why this is so important in the fantasy genre. I mean that in like the, the stereotypical fantasy fantasy genre. Well, in setting setting your story in a city allows you to bring in a lot of cultural and I say visual diversity, but even if we're just talking about, um, uh, you know, the written word, but, you know, if you think about New York city, you can walk six blocks in New York and it can feel like a very different place. You can walk into a, an ethnic neighborhood and everything's in a different language and there's a very different aesthetic. You can walk into an older neighborhood where the architecture is a lot older or a newer neighborhood where the architecture is newer. And um, you don't get the same voyage of discovery that you get in other fantasy where, you know, a lot of times the character is going to this place and they've never seen it before and you get to experience it for the first time like the character. Whereas something that takes place in a city, you know, the first time Spider-Man goes to Chinatown, like it's that there's not going to be all that all that much wonder and excitement for us. We assume he's been there before, and if he hasn't, we probably have. But um, yeah, it just kind is, of compresses things. This is a crucial point that I kind of came to when I was trying to figure out like why does what is this different about it? Why does it matter besides some of the obvious mechanical reasons? But I think it's because and why it bothers me so much when things don't handle it well, and why it bothers me so much when I don't have a map in front of me is because. We're an urban society, more or less, you know, the modern world anyway. Most people have been to a city or live in a city or even just a small town or a medium-sized town. It's all kind of, you know, just in just change of scale. But so we kind of understand, like, when they're talking about Mistborn, about going to a different sector of town or going a couple blocks, we have a really good idea of what that looks like. It doesn't have to be an exact science, right? But, like... You get the rough size of like a big city, even if it's a big city in a pre-modern society. You kind of understand that. We've all been to Colonial Williamsburg, right? That's exactly what it's like, right? Uh, no. But this stands in contrast to the kind of technology and types of travel that characters use in a pre-modern fantasy setting. 
Greg, how long does it take to get from Philadelphia to Harrisburg by horseback? Uh, you know, I wouldn't know if I hadn't Googled it. God damn it. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I actually, I looked into this because I was, I was getting pissed off about Game of Thrones and I wanted to know what the average, you know, mounted rider could do in a day of, of under relatively friendly terrain. And you're looking at between 30 and 50 miles a day. Um, you know, 30 miles if you're taking a lot of breaks, 50 to 60 miles if you're maybe in a military company moving with a lot of discipline. So Harrisburg, Philadelphia, as the crow flies, that's probably, that's about a, it's about a hundred, 120 miles. So, uh, two to three days, assuming, uh, assuming good conditions. And, you know, we can assume probably a little slower by cart or by wagon, something along those lines. But, you know, we had to look that up and figure that out and sort of play with that in our mind, which is something that when you're reading a book or watching a show or a movie, you don't really have the time to do. And I don't think it's a author's goal to make you be like, let me go to Google Maps and like look up some distances, right? Like most people, <laughs> most people don't know the diff, like what past 10 miles means, even in a car. I mean, if they think about it long enough, they'll get there. But like, if you just said like split second decision, sir, like how far away is, you know, yeah, Philadelphia from Harrisburg, they'd probably be like, I don't know, 50 miles, 60 miles. You know, they just wouldn't know because it's not something we worry about because it's not a problem for us. But even, I think there's a natural human um, tendency to, because we don't think in miles, but we might think in hours. And, you know, we're used to working backwards from, well, it's a two-hour drive, so that's probably about 120 miles because you figure most go about 60 miles an hour on average. So, you know, all right, so that's like a three-hour drive. Oh, boy, so that's almost 200 miles. And so when you see things like in fantasy books, like, oh, that's a week's ride away or that's a day's journey by foot. It's like, I think that makes sense. I feel like that's probably how most distances were measured until you got into like really modern road making. Right, absolutely. And that's like, my point is like time is what matters here. Yes. Uh, and- you know, you might say things like a week's travel, right? Well, what does that look like in relation to their direction? So let's say, you know, let's say we're reading, you're reading the first law trilogy and, you know, they're traveling from uh, whatever the main city is to the north, right? That's the thing that happens at some point. And they say, oh, it takes about, you know, it's a week by foot or by horseback and then another week by boat or whatever. Okay. So if you've got a map in front of you, you can then kind of look the other direction and go, okay, so if that's about that far. I can assume in the other four, you know, not four directions, but the four cardinal directions, you know, the three cardinal directions, that's about how far that is from there. And then you get scale of, all right, well, if they're going to move an army this way or these things, you know, a lot of the, the scale and the scope of these books, it's really crucial to understanding that where it's like, okay, the Gurkish are going to invade. Well, what does that mean? How far do they have to come? Like, what kind of logistics does that look like? Because those might sound like minuscule questions, but I think they're really crucial to feeling a part of the world. And feeling things like stakes, I think yeah. the most important thing, uh, they, you know, they absolutely are, are part of the stakes. And I think that's um, one of the things that's going wrong with Game of Thrones right now is that um, in fantasy, when you have a villain and we get to see what the villain's doing, doing, and we know the villain's plotting something and preparing something, and we know our heroes have only have a matter of time to finish their quest in order to, you know, before the bad guy reaches full power or discovers the secret jewel or what have you. Um, so we know that the big threat in Game of Thrones is the White Walkers are coming down from the north. Any day now, they're going to be at the wall, and that's a problem. And But then you start to be like, all right, so they're moving south, right? That's that's the ticking clock. So then I need I need every other character's actions to kind of be framed against that ticking clock. 
And the last time we saw the White Walkers, they were like 60 miles north of the wall. But in just two episodes of the show, Arya rode about a thousand miles from the twins to the end of the crossroads up to Winterfell. And it's like, well, were the bad guys just camping out, just hanging out during that time? What was going on? And any other simultaneous action that I might care about, what happened during that period of time when Arya was riding a thousand miles, which, you know, again, that's about a month. What was Cersei doing during that month? Like, I want to know. So because in a pre, you know, instantaneous communication world and a pre-automotive and air travel world, like distance and time are the same thing. And when you play loosey-goosey with the distance in your book, uh, either by just, you know, kind of letting your characters teleport around um, or not being clear how far things are away from each other, it makes it hard for me to know time as well. And it's tough to care about the stakes. It's tough to care about the ticking clock if I don't know how fast that clock is ticking or, you know, it speeds up or slows down based on the needs of the plot. It pulls you out of it. It makes things inconsistency. It's hard to care. Exactly. And, you know, I, I always say the example. And so Joe Abercrombie, uh, you know, author of the First Law series, uh, he's continuing working on that. Um, he wrote a little article on his website or blog about, uh, it was called Maps Craps. Um, <laughs> we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, did you read this article, Greg? I did. I did my homework. Yeah, good. Um, what'd you think of that? I agree with him. I you know, he was kind of expressing that he was maybe a little torn between of with the value of maps. And he says, the way I write my books, you know, I like to stay very, very tight with my characters. So I don't want to zo zoom out too far because it's not the story I want to tell. He, I think he used to, I'm not sure who, who, who he was quoting, but he said that, you know, fantasy is often told in wide shots to use the cinematic analogy. And he wants to use close-ups. He can't zoom out that much to look at the scenery and, and tell the story he wants to tell. And I'm like, I like that. I like that perspective. Um, so I guess, I guess my question for you, because, because I feel like, and, and Joe Abercrombie's point was, he's like, I have maps of the world. Like I sketch them out so that I know where things are and I know how long it takes characters to get from place to place. And I know what is, you know, realistic within the world that I've built. But I don't necessarily want to show it to the readers right away. Um, so I think you and I would both agree that for our nitpicky, detail-oriented, consistency-oriented brains, we want to know that the author had a map that they were working from when they wrote their book. My question for you is, is it also important to you as a reader to have a map that you can look at? For me, I'd say it is important. And the reason I say that is because I'm not saying you have to have a full painstakingly detailed world map. But I think the reader should be able to see a map of the world that's somewhat similar to what you'd be able to find in the world at the time for maybe the level of person you're dealing with, right? Like, sure, your average peasant in the north probably doesn't know anything about where anything is except maybe general directions like those crazy imperialists to the south somewhere. But it doesn't affect me my daily life, so fine. But Usually you're not dealing with just peasants. You're dealing with people who have access to information and have information. So someone like a character like to stick with Name of the Wind, or sorry, um, First Law, god dang it. Um, <laughs> a character like Logan or Baez, they know what the, you know, the general scope of what at least their area of the world looks like. They know it's a, 
even if they've ever seen one, they know the general distance, right? Like, okay, like there's an ocean there and, you know, that's the kind of thing. It's like for a while, it's hard to say, like, how big is the ocean between the north and the Midderland or whatever it's called? Uh, you know, how far away is, you know, the Gurkish from the north? Like, how do all these things interact with each other? And like I said before, relative distance is important to me, too. So being able to even just see one section of the map, I think some some books do it well, or where they show you just a segment of the map that you kind of need for that book. They don't just drop the whole world map for you. Um, some people do that, but uh, that's a little overwhelming as well. It's like, well, I don't even know where any of this shit is. I can't find crap. And <laughs> we're going to look at some maps, then I'm going to ask your opinion on some of them. But uh, I think that, and you'll be happy to know that uh, by the later books, Joe Abercrombie is including maps. Mm-hmm. Um because you know, especially as your, especially as your story begins to grow in scope, and fantasy stories oftentimes grow in scope, grow in scope, even if maybe the style of what you're telling it for a Joe Abraham, which is very character oriented, which is good, um, doesn't necessarily change. But you're traveling further distances, you're seeing more of the world, and it starts to get a little confusing. Of if I can't keep it all, and maybe it's just like that's you know some, some people's brains are wired different, right? Like some people are visual or whatever. Like maybe I'm just a visual guy and I really didn't see that map, even when I my day-to-day life i like to look at the map of where i'm going before i leave even if i have my gps to take me there so i like to know i'm heading west and it's going to take me roughly this many hours so i can kind of gauge that right maybe it's like a safety thing but uh old old genes coming out of wanting to know where you are at all times but i mean on the other hand you just be smart and just give your wizards fast travel (laughs) and just don't have to worry about anymore like wheel of time did uh but i don't want to actually describe that because it's that's actually good. Like, so by about book five, six, I don't know, somewhere in there, wheel of time, they basically get the ability to just make portals wherever the hell they want to. The the the, the super powerful people do anyway. And even though you know the prior couple of books, they spent a lot of time journeying in a lot of different directions, seeing a lot of different crazy places. But it's kind of a good thing because it makes it feel like earned and important. Like, hmm. boy, remember when it took us two books to cross that desert? Sure is nice just to teleport there. And it helps for mechanical reasons where you're not like, well, we came to this desert to find this artifact or whatever. Now we have to go back through it. <laughs> it's kind of like a video game, right? Like you don't want to <laughs> retrace your steps. It's boring. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I think for me, I like a map. I think that doesn't have to be, I think even if it's a map that's like an in-universe map, I actually like those the best where it looks like someone in that universe has this map and it may not be 100% accurate. And they don't know what's beyond those mountains. So it's just a gray space. Kind of like, I mean, I think like it should match. I mean, you've probably seen maps from, you know, like medieval and even ancient times. Like they have pretty damn good maps, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know that you like a map. You're very kind of completionist and you like to have that bird's eye view. I find that I generally don't find myself needing a map unless I feel like I'm getting confused about where my characters are in relation to other things, which I think is then, for me, a symptom of sloppy writing somewhere. Like, if I've forgotten what city my characters are in, um, looking at you, Marine, Yonkai, Slavers Bay, <laughs> um, <laughs> then somehow we've missed the mark and these things are too identical or um, it's not... It's not clear enough in the in the writing. Um, and I generally find myself that, and it depends on the book, but a lot of times if I go and I seek out a map, it it's almost like peeking at your Christmas presents and I feel like I'm somehow spoiling something for me. Because again, I th- and I think part of it might have to do with, again, what the characters know. 
because I don't feel as bad looking at a map of Westeros because everybody in in that world would have a map of Westeros. I don't feel like I'm getting a privileged view. You know, I'm kind of sticking with the character point of view. So yeah, to your point, like if it's available to the characters, it feels a little different. And but if it isn't available to the characters, if it isn't commonly known, then it feels a little like cheating. I don't know. I will agree that I think that you can make up for a lot if not by not having a map through good and clever writing. Uh, and sometimes books just don't need it. You know, like I'm Mistborn books are a good example. Like there's maps of, you know, the city there in which I'm blanking on the name of and, um, you know, that area. But they aren't really necessary. I just think it's when you start having six, seven, ten different countries and cultures and you're not exactly sure who's connected to who. And that's when it starts to get to the point where you're like, all right, I need a fucking map. And I think that's the point that, you know, in the first law trilogy, you don't really need a map because you're really only in a couple areas. But by the time the standalone books in the first law universe come around, it's like you're starting to get to that point where, all right, I need to get my bearings a little bit and know where in relation this is to that. Because, you know, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's not easy to bring out in the story, but I think you can do it through clever writing if you're good. So should we take a break there and uh, talk about some news? We should. So we're still a bit in the summer doldrums here. There's not a lot going on, but a couple of just just little nuggets I wanted to touch on. Uh, first thing, uh, Sam Jackson was just interviewed, and he said that he isn't in any of the upcoming Marvel films. None, like not Infinity War, not the set, the sequel, and doesn't know anything about Captain Marvel, which I find kind of weird. He also complained about not being in the Black Panther movie because he was like something along the lines of, "You're making a goddamn black superhero movie, and Nick Fury isn't in it. Like, what the hell?" <laughs> Yeah, um, that does so. seem strange. I mean, I know that it feels like they've been trying to phase him out. Uh, I mean, they basically, you know, they, they killed him in uh, Winter Soldier, and then he was back for a minute in Civil War. But, and I think it kind of makes sense from a story perspective to phase him out, but also he can't just disappear. He's a vital character. I mean... Yeah, he actually was in Age of Ultron, not Civil War. He wasn't in Civil War. Oh, but. got it. Got it. Um, uh, but yeah, no, he was only in at the end and, and then he wasn't in Civil War and the whole thing you're wondering, because like this guy, I mean, he's what brought them together, right? right. You know, you can't. He can't just I guess disappear. Technically, he's still dead, maybe. I don't know, like in the eyes of the public. But um, but yeah, I just thought it was weird. I really, I really did. I really expected him to be in the next two Avengers movies because everyone else is. Yeah. Although he, he also might be playing coy with us and he'll show up for a, uh, you know, as a surprise. I would. Yeah, it that could be it. Again, it's it would be very strange if you know. Again, there's an intergalactic, you know, cosmic god with a infinity gauntlet, and his girlfriend is literally death. And Nick Fury just was like, "No, nah, I'm on vacation. I'm good." <laughs> uh, another bit of Marvel news here. So, have you heard about this Marvel Legacy thing they're doing? I, I have no idea what this is. So they're basically renumbering. They're starting, so oftentimes, you know, when they bring out whatever world-changing event happens in DC or Marvel, they start, you know, Batman number one, you know, for this volume or whatever. But they're doing this thing where they're trying to get more in touch with their, you know, older, I don't know, their older comics, and they're renumbering all of their comics the opposite direction. Oh. So, like, the what? new, the next issue of Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, volume six or whatever is going to be, like, 386. And now there's guides to tell you what those numbers all are. Wait, so... So wait, are they doing like a BC AD thing where like, you know, like the first Captain America, the last Captain America before the big 
blow up? Is that Captain America negative one? No, they're they're making they're doing the opposite of that. Okay. They're it'd be like if we got rid of AD and BC and just had one running year. Gotcha. So you know, Spider Man issue one is the you know one from nineteen sixty three or four or whatever, and the next Spider Man issue is mean nine hundred and sixty whatever. Uh, even though they haven't used those numbers in twenty years, huh? Because they kept renumbering. It's kind of a weird decision. Yeah. I'm not really sure the logic behind it, but I just thought it was something interesting. Yeah. Any thoughts? I mean. Yeah, I think they are definitely trying to reconnect with their older fans and give some legitimacy to the older stories. And also, maybe this might be a way of getting newer fans to, it's like, oh man, this is Batman number 900. I've got a lot of catching up to do, a lot of back issues to buy on Comixology now, as opposed to, you know, oh, this is Batman number one, I'm, I'm good to go. Um, I don't know, seems strange. Of course, those were DC yeah, examples and you said it was Marvel, but... yeah. Well, we're off wrong, but I think it's interesting. I think that I'll be curious to see what, like, how how it handles. Like, are they sort of picking out those numbers? Because there's a lot of different concurrent series for characters like Spider-Man or whatever. So what are they picking and choosing to be the main, you know, prime numbering, if you will? And are, and are, are they saying, by doing that, are they making a judgment call and saying, these are the main Spider-Man stories? Yeah. Right? I don't know. But another bit of comic news. I uh, just wanted to hear if you're going to scream. So Dream from... Neil Gaiman's Salmon is being reintroduced to the main DC canon after a pretty long hiatus. What do you think about that, Craig? Uh, I have similar thoughts to them reintroducing Dr. Manhattan. Uh, a lot of people are theorizing we might get a Dr. Manhattan V dream situation at some point, um, which is, I'm sure, you know, what you've always wanted, Craig. Uh, it, it, <laughs> I mean, the I know that, you know, dream was a like a part of DC canon and like a part of the DC universe, but like he's also like a godlike cosmic figure and shouldn't be like bumming around with Batman trying to like find the penguins fingerprints. That just doesn't, doesn't work <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, although apparently they approach Neil Gaiman about it and pitch him the story and he's got his full hundred percent support, but eh, we shall see. It's part of this metal event. I don't know. I, I should be probably more interested than I am. But anyway, um, two more things. So I said this to you before, but I wanted to hear you scream on on in your <laughs> via microphone. There was an interesting Reddit interaction for those of you unaware. Uh, Brandon Sanderson is very active on Reddit and oftentimes just drop in on random posts and just talk to people about stuff. And someone posted some pretty mundane post about some connection between Game of Thrones and Wheel of Time. And he came in and said that the first person on Harriet, who is um, Robert Jordan's widow, uh, her first person to continue this uh, Wheel of Time series was George R. R. Martin, because I guess him and Jordan were very good friends and helped each other a lot. And uh, so there is a parallel universe somewhere where George R. R. Martin was optioned to finish Wheel of Time, and he has brought out one less A Song of Ice and Fire book and only one Wheel of Time book, and we have two series languishing <laughs> in forever, never being finished land. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that. You know what? That's better than the alternate universe we talked about a little while ago, where Patrick Rothfuss is finishing out Song of Ice and Fire. So <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah. So that was just interesting. But um, are you excited for Defenders this weekend? Is that this weekend? Yeah, I guess that says how excited I am. All right. No, I, I, I. You know what? I, I will probably end up watching it. Um, I've just been so wrapped up in Game of Thrones, Preacher, and. Twin Peaks and now Rick and Morty that like my TV show cafeteria platter is full. All the little carved out little sections for your various 
fruit pies and they're all filled up right now. So once one of those drops off, I might be able to check out Defenders. Yeah, man. Our cups overfloweth. It's a good time. <laughs> Shall we get back to maps? Let's get back to maps. So, Greg, let's look at some maps. And in classic podcasts, you know, I don't know what you call it. We're going to do the best thing. We're going to talk about things that viewers can't see. Yes, audio, visual dis- descriptions in an audio medium. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. So let's start back with the classic. Let's look at Middle Earth. What do you think of this? So one? I love the Middle Earth map. Um, and maybe part of that is because I stared at it for so long as a child. Um, the original Tolkien map that, you know, was included in the uh, in the print editions of the Lord of the Rings books. Um, it has so much character to it, and it looks like his calligraphy in it and his visual design in it, it just feels like so much of an, it feels like an artifact of the world. Like it, it just feels so genuine and it feels like this is the map that Bilbo looked at. Um, there's something very magical about that, but also I think it's important that you as a reader visually see the distance between the Shire and Mount Doom because establishing how isolated the Shire is from the rest of the action, that's important because it shows you how selfless the Sam and Frodo are being by going on this journey because they're going off to solve a problem in Mordor, which is a world away. doesn't really necessarily impact them, but they're going to do it anyway. So it shows that they're being selfless in doing that. But it also shows that this journey is no joke. This is a long way to go, and they've got a lot of things in front of them. So And if you know that going in, you get to experience with the characters the kind of the trepidation and the feelings that they feel and the fear of, holy shit, look at all this walking you're going to have to do. I mean, even though we have some eagles, but don't worry about the eagles. Um, (laughs) uh, So I think that one's a very important map and a very good one to have. Um, And ditto for for the map in The Hobbit, which is even better with this little cartoon dragon next to Mount Doom and the weird little like... uh, wizard hand pointing to the elvish letters oh so good so good for a young greg to look at yeah i mean i i do love this map. everything you said is so true and i think it really set i mean it really was to my knowledge the first time you had like a map made by the creator included in a work you know a fantasy work like this i don't think some of the earlier fantasy works had this sort of thing maybe they did i don't know but i think it set this set the stage set the standard that a map is something that is useful for a story that has a lot of journeying in it. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I just, I just want to keep looking at it, but we got to move on. So it's that map. Let's look at, let's look at uh, what people have taken to call planet toast, AKA Westeros NSOS, the song of ice and fire world. Um, this map is old. The one I sent you, but a little bit more. It's, it's not, it's not, this is fan made, but uh, actually the one in the world of ice and fire looks pretty damn similar to this. So what do you think of the map of, of Planetos? So I, I think this one is important because um, in the books, the, um, the you know, distance and time, those are so important to the plot points. Um, and I do, like I said, I feel like this is information that, you know, a lord or lady of Westeros would have at their disposal. Hell, Stannis has a table carved in the shape of this thing. So... What I don't like about it is, and maybe this is being picky, those land masses do not look realistic or like, they look like, because Essos looks so like, it's just like, 
I've got a vertical rectangle and a horizontal rectangle. Got it. That's how geology works. They just, I don't know. They just, they look very contrived and not convincing to me. And I guess that's fine. But that's, that's my big complaint about these is it just, it doesn't, doesn't look like a real map. It looks like something a kid would draw when they were designing their first fantasy world. Yeah, I, I want to compare this with the map of the Stormlight Archive because it's also a very different style map, but it looks, but it's, this seems like off in a way that just seems like people, someone just drew squiggle lines where <laughs> I think you can have a really weird looking map and system, but it's more purposeful. So I would agree. I think that one thing that always sort of made, made me feel weird, and this is a common trope that I want to touch on, is that there's this trope in fantasy. It happens in... um Song of Ice and Fire happens in Wheel of Time. It happens in Abercrombie in kind of two ways. And it sort of betrays a little like Eurocentric worldview, which I guess we're doing with oftentimes Western European based medieval fantasy. So I guess it's a big surprise, but where you've got Westeros, which is, you know, big, but still kind of small compared to this huge continent on the other side, you know, right across the, the narrow sea which is full of all those weirdos. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for lack of a better term, like the other cultures that aren't feudal knights and things, right? Like, and that just feels weird to me that we're supposed to feel like our place is the most important place, but it's also like the smallest and the most homogenous in a lot of ways. And it feels weird. Yeah. And, you know, you look at all that space out there in Essos and it almost looks like wasted. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's such a common trope is the, you know, the foreign land with the strange the strange people with their strange customs. But I mean, I guess Essos isn't that different than Westeros. No, I mean, West Essos isn't real different. Oh, fair, I mean, fair point. Yeah. But I think once you got the Dothraki and slavers and stuff, I guess it's not real different. But and this event doesn't even have the other side of Essos on it with all the shy by the sea and all that, which we don't even know anything about. But all right, on the next one. Mm -hmm. So this is called, this is the Wheel of Time map. You haven't read yet, but... You say yet. Yeah. That's very confident. Well, I'm going to get you someday. It's only 14 books, man. Come on. Uh, <laughs> um, this People call it Randland because there's not a name for it. And Rand is the main character of the books. I don't know. It's kind of a dumb name. But so what do you think of this one? So it certainly looks more like, you know, geog geology or geography that I would expect to see. Um, there's a peninsula that looks a lot like a dong. So that's realistic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it, 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 it borrows a little too heavily from Tolkien in my eyes. Like I see a lot of like rectangles and straight lines that, you know, kind of wall things off uh, a little too conveniently, kind of like Mordor is like got a fence around it of almost <laughs> yeah, straight yeah. lines of mountains. But um, no, I would agree with that. Um, this one is important for me because I think that it shows all these little, you know, I'll see a little country countries on there. You see like Andor and carrying and you know all these different places they do, i think he one of the one of the strengths of jordan and wheel of time is his world building is really on point and i think he does a really good job of like these people are all different but they're different in ways that make sense you know like they have a different they don't speak different languages they just have different dial like dialects and that comes out in the writing and they they wear different clothing and they have the different foods like he does he does a lot of mixings of like and apparently if you're smart you can kind of see like oh he's talking about like Vietnamese food, but like they eat it here, even though it's not. I think it's a good job of sort of breaking down some of like a. These are the pair, like these are the you know simulacrums of Eastern or Western European. These are the you know mm -hmm. archetypes of Chinese people. Like he does a good job of like really just shaking that up and not making it so obvious and kind of feels a little icky sometimes. I think. Yeah, 
And I think, um, you know, especially the Game of Thrones TV show does a really excellent job of that, of showing through costume and food and hairstyles that these, you know, these um, these areas are different to an extent, but, you know, still essentially the same overarching culture. Yeah. Uh, this You also know also that I think there's another trip I want to bring up was that uh, the North where the big bad things are. <laughs> yep. That's a really common fantasy trip. And I'm not, I mean, I guess it makes sense because it's sort of where a lot of people think monsters live, but you know, and you have a beyond the wall and Westeros, you have, this is called the blight. It's where all the monsters live. And then in Abercrombie's first law universe, you have Shanka. Yes. Live, live way up in the North. So I think that that's another really common fantasy trope of things coming down from the North, which I think is interesting. Well, and that's just, I think that's probably has something to do with just unexplored lands, right? In, in, in history, like, oh, well, no, there's monsters up there. Of course there are. What else would be up in the land we haven't explored yet? Um, and w- the north, at least in our, you know, history, is was unexplored because it was cold and barren and it wasn't worth going much further north. You get to a certain level and it's like, it's all just ice and rocks up there, guys. There's nothing. There's no more, uh, no more buffalo up there. So why are we going? Yeah. And, and I think the barrenness, you know, it's, that sort of thing is like, what could live there but monsters, right? Yeah. All right, on the next one, let's look at let's look at Roshar. Once again, you haven't read Stormlight Archives yet. Uh, and that one I'm confident you're going to read. But so this is a very different map, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it is I'm not sure is this just one island? Is this the whole is this the whole world? I'm not, I'm very This is this is the whole world as far as we 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 know of. Okay, so we got kind of a Pangea situation. Pretty much, yeah. And a weird sort of like, I don't know, yin-yang shape kind of thing. I don't yeah. know. Uh but I really like this map. It doesn't look like real geography, but it looks that like looks like it was purposely not, you know, not just like he just ah just do this. Like it was like I'm going for a very particular kind of design and um, mix up some of the tropes a little bit where there's not really like a very obvious like there be monsters here kind of thing <laughs> and you know like the frostlands are down in the bottom right hand corner and you know they're not or you know the southern corner. It's not like doesn't mirror our world's geography or environment in any way whatsoever, which is true of, of, you know, the setting of the book. So which um, that thing in the middle is cool. That the pure lake, you see that mm-hmm. that's a lake that is only a foot deep, the whole thing. Huh. Yeah. I think there's physics problems with that, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I, this is, this does remind me of a, um, of a, of a fantasy map making trope that I would like to point out. And that is, so you've got these lands named in, you know, what you know you can call conlangs constructed languages like um jacoved azir eerie the reshi isles and then the frostlands like so number one that's a weird mix right <laughs> like and also the frostlands like nobody names anything that like <laughs> i mean other than iceland i guess <laughs> but um it's always, you know, like we call them the Frostlands or the Land of the Shadow, Lake of the Shining Waters. And that is not how anything is named in the real world, at least not in the native language. I mean, yes, Philadelphia translates to, you know, City of Brotherly Love, kind of, maybe, but uh, not in the, like, the native language that we're speaking at right now. I mean, even Mechanicsburg where I live, okay, Berg means town, but mechanic, that's a different language. It's obviously English. We just slammed some English and some German together and got the name of a town. But the Frostlands, like a, just it, 
Who named it? What, what, what rational person in your fantasy world names it? The Frost Lads, the Frozen Wastes. <laughs> I guess that's fair. <laughs> All right, two more. So this one is uh, you, what you're currently reading. This is the first law map yes. on his website. Um, which when I first saw this, I was like, that is not what I had in my head at all. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's not what I imagined either. I also, part of me kind of likes the idea that, um, cause just, you know, looking at the overall geography here, like, wouldn't it be cool if this was, you know, the impact site of, you know, a, a meteor thousands and thousands and thousands of millions of years ago because when i see kind of a ring of mountains and water in the middle uh that looks like a crater to me and that you know that you know your your little fantasy world was formed by uh, an astrological impact thousands and thousands of years ago is really cool i don't know if that's the direction he's going i would almost hope it is because otherwise this has the same problem of westeros like it feels a little too convenient and contrived that, you know, your the circle of the world is actually circle shaped. You know, in our in our world, we talk about the four corners of the world, which is kind of a fucking joke because there are no corners. It's a fucking ball. But now it's like, no, it's a circle of the world. That's actually this kind of circular uh, system of islands. Um, yeah, again. Uh, so, I also feel like it's a little like on the nose that like our main quote unquote main characters and like the setting of a majority of the book is like in dead smack in the middle yes. basically the bullseye of and all these like enemies essentially surround them you know what i mean yes. uh it makes it but it does make it you know it does it, there's a mechanical thing we're like well it's not too far to anything from the beginning of the book you know what i mean if you want to go any direction yeah. you can i mean you would you would it, it would make sense that if you had some kind of circular geography that the center of culture would be the center of trade which you'd put that in the middle right that's why um you know when we were building out the American colonies, we put the capital kind of in the middle, right? We kind of put it in Philadelphia because it was kind of mm -hmm. equidistant from everybody. Well, not equidistant, but it was the most fair and it made sense. Like anything coming from the South to the North has to pass through here. So it kind of makes sense. But again, it's just a little too convenient and a little bit like a, you know, some 13 year old, like I'm going to make my own fantasy world. And it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be shaped like a circle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Say so the best for last. You know this Ugh. one? Yeah. Speaking of things, it looks like a 12-year-old Drew. <laughs> it does look like it's actually made in Cran. Um, but, you know, this is one of those things where this map isn't terrible until you realize that the whole thing is probably, what, 100 miles apart, you know, yeah. or whatever it's supposed yeah. to be. Like, So I will uh, I will give give them this. This geography looks natural. And the borders... This is a Rothfuss map, by the way. Yes. For name of the wind. Uh, the borders look realistic. They seem to be drawn around rivers and what look like natural boundaries. So this, I will give it that. Um, but it's also incredibly boring to look at. Yeah. And it's not a pretty map at all. And, you know, you've got this thing called the Commonwealth, but there's only like three cities listed in it. And uh, the Aeteran Empire, it's an empire, but it's really only about as big as any of the other jurisdictions and only appears to have one city in it so it's just kind of like it's it's too much information and not enough information all at once <laughs> and i feel like it doesn't really fit the book right like it doesn't really feel like the world that we're traveling in 
it doesn't feel like it's like I feel like I'm looking at a map of something different. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that, but it doesn't feel like it fits. Where the other all the other maps, at least for me, they feel like they fit with what's going on and the way that things are described. And you know, at least some of those things, I at least had like an idea of like even before I saw the map, like yeah, I kind of get what's going on and, here. But this one, I'm just like, eh, I don't know. And in these books, I, I mean, truthfully, there's nothing about the story where I really care about how any of these. Uh, areas are related to each other or how far they are it doesn't really matter because the book is so tight on the characters that i'm like why do i need to know that you know where the Aetern empire exists in relation to Vintus? like that's not i don't need to know that it just seems like a lot of work for something that doesn't really connect to the story in any meaningful way yeah like this could be a situation where you don't really need a map because a the majority of the story takes place in one of two spots and they're kind of close to each other and then when he finally does leave and goes to Vintas and then uh, the Edomir, like it, you know, once again, you're not seeing a lot of the travel there. You're just there. Right. So it doesn't really matter. Right. You know, until it does matter when you're like, wait, you just walked back. Like, <laughs> uh, so. All right. Well, that's a rundown on some maps. I thought that was fun. Yes. We'll link him in the show notes. Um, but let's push forward a little bit. And I think one other thing I think is important trope is like leaving unexplored places as a way of future proofing yourself as an author and world builder. Like you want to get that sequel out. You can always go to that other continent over there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I also want to make the connection of like how important maps are for like role playing games. Like, you know, go go back a few weeks with Roger here. Like I can't even start making a campaign. And well, I can start the, the process of like thinking about a campaign. But when I start actually sitting down to make the details, I have to have a map. Otherwise, I can't even function. My brain just doesn't work which maybe is a personal problem, but so what do you think? What do you think the maps are important? I, I think that, I think that they are absolutely integral for a author who wants to build a convincing and consistent world. Um, I think they can be useful to a reader in some of the circumstances that we outlined, like, is this information that the characters have? Um, do I need this information to make sense of the characters travels and, the relationships of various groups and societies, or is it just kind of extraneous and rothfussy? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well then I guess we're in agreement, which is, you know, it's a good, th- good place to end an episode. <laughs> All right. So I had some recommendations. Yes. Uh, go for it. Uh, since we're doing a sort of mappy world building, getting into nitty gritty details, I wanted to recommend some like fictional nonfiction books. Um, so the world of ice and fire is actually quite good if you want to get your hands on it it's like the big source book that martin did when he should have been writing winds of winter um the art is sometimes really good and sometimes really crappy but the maps are cool and you get some good details about some places we haven't been yet which is fun um i don't know why i'm recommending something i haven't actually read yet but i've heard good things uh the wheel of time companion is something very similar uh it's huge apparently it's just massive so be ready for that but it just goes delves into you know cultures and places and you know pictures and maps and all that fun stuff and then the last one is sort of it's not the same thing but sanderson's arcanum unbounded is uh his short story collection but the short stories are divided into the areas of the cosmere which are all their own solar systems and he has star system maps of those places so you can see what the star system of misborn's misborn's world <laughs> aka called scadrial is where it sits in its place which 
when you're talking about extraneous, that's about as extraneous as you can get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what? Yeah, I, from what I've read from Sanderson, he's gonna he's gonna find a way to make this information impactful to the plot, and it's all gonna connect somehow. If you know the Mistborn trilogy was any indication. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So, uh, how about you? Any recommendations? Yeah, this is one that goes back to my childhood. Um, it's called The Dictionary of Imaginary Places, and it is a it's kind of presented like a traveler's guide to all of these kind of fictional locations. Um, and it's been through a couple volumes, you know, I think it started in the eighties, but I had, I had it as a kid and, um, all the maps are drawn and they're cons- like, they're drawn by the authors and they're consistent, like from entry to entry. And it really just feels like this compendium of fictional worlds and it's really written again like a traveler's guide like you might visit these places um it's very very charming and so much of what's in it is stuff from like the late 1800s and early 1900s so just that era of fantasy writing and science fiction writing it has this really kind of quaint charm to it so it's a lot of fun uh to look at um i think they have a uh, recent edition from 2000, but you know, um, like it's got a map of Oz in it and a map of, you know, like where Pippi Long- Longstocking goes. So, um, it's pretty fast and also middle earth. Um, so it's pretty fascinating and uh, a lot of fun. If you like this kind of more clinical look at the worlds of, uh, fantasy, uh, and science fiction. That sounds cool. Should we very quickly run down this, uh, this most recent episode of Game of Thrones, which had a lot of stuff, but also nothing. Yeah. I think we yeah. can do this quickly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't have a lot to say, but okay. let's do it. So, so yes, I think we can do this in, in the next couple minutes because, yeah, f- for an episode that had a lot happened, it also seemed to, like, be kind of empty. So, first of all, I should say that we did the math. We did some research on medieval ship speed, and John could make the trip by boat from uh dragonstone to Eastwatch in about a week to two weeks depending on a number of factors but that seems reasonable that seems like it works um once we get into ship travel i think our characters have a lot more leeway of how they get places um but they go to man they call this episode Eastwatch, which we know is like that's probably where the big incursion of the Night's King is going to happen. It's going to happen at Eastwatch. And we call this episode Eastwatch and we don't get to Eastwatch the last three minutes of the goddamn episode. It's kind of kind of a bait and switch there. Um, yeah, I was mad. I was real fucking mad. <laughs> I mean, we're going to get that fight next week, but... Um, I know, but then they called call that episode Eastwatch. God damn it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, when when we fought them at Hardhome, it was called Hardhome. And when Ned, when Ned Stark got his hair cut, it was on the st- steps of the Sept of Baylor, and that episode was called Baylor. Anyway... Um, I gotta say that the getting the Magnificent Seven together at the end, um, as dumb and contrived as that is, man, it is kind of cool to see these seven like fully developed characters. Well, maybe not so much Gendry, but whatever. He seems like he turned into a pretty cool dude. <laughs> yeah, dude, that Warhammer is awesome. Oh, and I love like oh as a as a guy who plays a lot of dwarves whose hammers in uh you know D, I was like yeah that's what i always imagined <laughs> that scene was so economical too like the the writing in that of getting all of that in in that scene like was actually a pretty good bit and like where davos was like well you know i really should boy 
how am I going to convince you to leave? And Gendry's like, I'm going, let's go. Come on, let's go. Get in the car. <laughs> he's like, uh, you know how to use a sword? He's like, no, I don't. And I was like, mm. and he's like, I got a hammer. We're good. <laughs> like, good, good. I like. <laughs> I just love that. That was a great, that portion of it. So like, I mean, Davos, the guy playing, he's such a treasure. Oh, like, yes, I mean, yes, he, he for me, is just the highlight of the show right now. And, you know, that diplomacy check with those guys, you know, the two guys by the boat, like, so good. So good. Such a good scene. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I am very excited to see like these seven like super badasses get together. It's kind of like the Avengers moment of like, cool, I know who all these characters are. I'm excited to see them together. I'm a little worried that we're going to see them for like 30 minutes next week and that's going to be the end of that super team. But the value- well, I'm pretty sure half of them are going to die. <laughs> Which half? I hope it's Jorah. Um, I think I think he's dead I'm for sure. That was a love triangle. So sick of that dude. Oh God. The love triangle there, I was like, oh, I didn't expect this at all. I, that was not the love triangle I expected to see at this point in the story. You mean the love triangle where only one of the actors is capable of showing affection? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, yeah, that actor that Jura. one. Um, so, yeah, I, even though as dumb as it is and as contrived and quickly put together as it is, I'm like, yeah, let's do this. Let's see these dudes go wreck shop. Um, I did. I was hoping to see and hear more about the aftermath of Danny's attack on the loot train because she blew up a whole bunch of food. And that's probably going to be a plot point. And I would have liked to have seen that addressed a little bit. Um, I also thought a weird thing that seemed like a weird rushed thing. So like Sam leaves Old Town and he like just grabs like just handfuls of scrolls and books. Like how helpful is that going to be? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can, I'm trying to just suspend his belief and be like, okay, he kept creeping in there at night and knew which books and stuff he thought he were, had stuff in and was just grabbing the ones he thought would be the most useful and just went. Okay, I get kind of behind that because he definitely wasn't just grabbing at random because like I spent a lot of time in the library and if I just grabbed books at random, I'd be like, well, why did I even do this? <laughs> there's just, there's yeah. a lot of topics in the library. But I feel like there could have been another economical way to do that if he just said like, I've been sneaking these scrolls out because I knew the maesters wouldn't listen to me. I, like I've been building this up for the last couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah. uh, but also in, in that scene, they sure snuck that Rhaegar information in there, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, which, you know, is important because it shows that he is not a bastard to them. He is a full, legitimate child, apparently. Um, and like you said, it will uh, it will show it'll be it'll mean that under the current laws of the kingdom, he is the rightful king. Yes, John. Uh, so to clarify, because, again, they fucking blew past this. Um, Gilly found in a scroll that Rhaegar Targaryen essentially divorced his then wife, um, in order to marry Lyanna Stark before she had Jon Snow, which would make, to your point, he is now the male heir to the Iron Throne, which uh, under the current laws says he has the claim. But I think the more interesting part is whether or not Jon Snow is entitled to the throne. The big question is, how is Daenerys going to react to that news? Yeah, I mean, this thing that she claims is hers. But then again, her whole claim is, isn't based on anything either because there's women don't have a claim to begin with. So it's really not. It's really just. So. Yeah, I don't know. So I did some research on uh, on the uh, Song of Ice and Fire wiki that said that the basic law is with Targaryen under the Targaryen rule that the throne could pass to a woman if the male if there were no male heirs. Mm, so. Okay. Daenerys does have a legal claim if Jon Snow is not Rhaegar's legitimate son, but if he is, it is his legally. And not only, and you got to think that okay, well, the law doesn't matter too much here, but you have to wonder 
if he's got the legitimate claim, plus he's also like a folk hero among half the population as the king in the north, you know, it politically, you know, he's got a lot of power behind him as well. So that could make for some very interesting things down the road and could set up, which is kind of the ending that I think I want is not John and Daenerys, but John versus Daenerys. I I want that too, but I don't think it's going to happen. They're just going to go to Bone Town and they're going to get married and it's going to solve that problem neatly. So eh, I hope I hope there's some conflict before, but we'll see. Um, I had a couple points, just real brief, uh, brief little anthropology history shout out when he tried to say Gendry is Clovis being in a cave about, you know, with Obsidian. Clovis points were an early uh, American uh, like group. They're based on the stone points. He was called Clovis points. I thought was there's a stone connection there. I don't know. I'm a nerd. Uh, I don't know if that's purposeful or not, but I, I thought it was cool. Um, I thought this was quite a good time for an episode where you have a bunch of people who are like kind of nationalistic, a little xenophobic and making choices that are questionable, you know, to not fight alongside people from a different culture and race. Uh, I, won't, I won't say anything more about that, but. <laughs> are you saying that Randall Tarley is the alt-right? No, I mean, no, no, maybe. I don't know. Um, we could only wish, right? Uh, no, um, I I really like Jamie as the voice of reason. Like, listen, we aren't going to win this fucking war. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I did not see, I did not see coming that Cersei was at least allegedly pregnant. Yeah. Well, this is going to be, that's going to be interesting because that definitely brings in an element of time that is going to be very obvious to viewers. And right. it's going to be interesting how they deal with that. It's also going to be interesting how that influences events to come and you know our prediction that jamie kills cersei takes on a different tone does it not yeah that was my biggest thing i was like how is he ever going to kill her now i mean maybe like you said maybe they just they do do the course of time and you know the baby's born by the time that happens i don't know but that seems like a weird pacing like i can't imagine pregnant cersei walking around being menacing not that not that pregnant women can be menacing that's <laughs> what i mean but just like it's just like a weird thing to see on screen um yeah. so i'm not really sure it's it's a really strange twists and definitely yeah. uh changes my perspective on and, some of my some of our predictions at least and it's also kind of a where are they going with this type of question as well like what what is the significance of this on the plot like what is what is this going to have to do with anything so i'm curious to see what this new development means for the larger storyline in general yeah and i think that you know just to wrap up here i think that from last week's episode i think that you i think you're definitely right that we're going to see maybe even some sort of brief armistice between the two big sides to fight the White Walkers. I do think that we might, we, what we might get next episode is the Magnific Magnif Magnificent Seven gets in a load of trouble and what comes flying over top of that wall, but Danny on a dragon to save the day, but then the dragon gets killed and that's when the wall comes down. Um, not sure that could be next episode or the episode after. I think that's the events that could happen. Um, cause I don't know how else you get a dragon up there for what purpose, uh, which I'm still pretty sure is how the wall is going to go down. And, um, yeah, but I, you know, next week should be the penultimate episode, which is always the big one. So <laughs> everything happens. Yeah. When we've been building up for it, Man, but I think this episode was, was pretty solid overall. I mean, there's some dumb things like you said, but I, even though it was a, as a building episode, it was, I enjoyed it more than I've enjoyed yeah. the past episodes. I think some good, some good moments, some good scenes, mm -hmm. but I think that does it for us this week. Yeah, we'll be back next week to talk about it and uh, and see how see which which of our predictions come true. 
All right. Oh, we can't. We should. We should. We should have made a, a wager of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. All right. Well, uh, until next week, buddy. I hope you have a good, uh, a good couple days. You too.